Welcome back, Brett. It's been a while since we've sat across from each other to do an episode. In the timeline of our publications, it, it won't be that much, but... Uh, yeah, it'll just be it, a week for, for the normal people. For the normies, uh, but for us misfit high school rebels, uh, it's going to be like coming back to a reunion. That's right. And that is our theme for today, high school. We are going back to high school. Um, you know, I where we totally peaked. Right. Oh, yeah. Uh, maybe I might have even peaked in elementary school, to be honest. Oh, well, I mean, I, I peaked in uh, Montessori school. You know, I, I really... I mean, after that, there wasn't much more for me to accomplish. Yeah, all downhill from there. I mean, yeah, no, it's just nothing, nothing left to prove anymore at all. Shall we start the show? Yeah. I'm Shira. I'm a rom-com fan. I'm Brett. I'm a horror movie fan. And together each week we pick one rom-com, one horror movie, and you know what? We then remix those movies in the opposite genre. We'll turn that horror movie into a rom-com. We'll turn that rom-com into the horror movie that... Brett probably already envisions when he is watching these movies that I force him to watch. It's not I'm, torture, I'm usually it's love. Pretty, yeah, I'm usually pretty happy with the movies. <laughs> it's, it's only happened a few times where I'm really, oof. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think that that's kind of the, the fun of this whole concept. I, I like the idea of getting out of our comfort zones when it comes to the genres we like and, and bringing our, our own spin on them. Yeah, I um, for my Get Over It remix, I kind of have, I kind of just remade the movie. And then at the very end... I, I decided you could have a choose your own adventure if you wanted. If you wanted it to be a horror movie, then you pick one ending. And if you want it to be a rom-com, you pick the other. So you can be my producer today and tell me which one to go with. Oh, that's tantalizing. I can, yeah. I can be a, a bit of the bit of a test audience, like a like a real teen. <laughs> right. <laughs> Deciding the fate of the ending of a of a movie. Yeah, no, I, I, I also feel like the faculty for a horror movie had a ton of romance in it. So many couples in the movie. So for a romance fan, uh, the faculty gives a, gives you a lot of, a lot to snack on. Yeah. It, uh, it, I thought it, it knocked it out of the park. <laughs> 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 and is that because it's uh, written by Scream writer Kevin Williamson and uh, directed by fellow Texan Robert Rodriguez? 
I did not know that that the screenwriter did Scream, but that makes complete sense. Oh I'm my god! Not it's, but the movie, like it, it goes on the Scream template. Uh, yeah, we'll, no, we'll definitely. Talk, we will talk about that that as we get into the movies. Um, but I think that if you didn't know before, I'm sure it makes a lot of sense that this is clearly the writer of Scream. No, yeah, I I am not surprised at all. And then Robert Rodriguez, uh, yeah, I'm a huge fan. So it, it all, and then the cast, oh my God, the cast. I think actually, I'm going to put it out there, the cast in both movies. Yeah, that's true. Pretty great. I mean, I would say that there were a couple of weak links uh on on both uh on both films but overall amazing cast and and people who ended up doing great work later you know some teen teen actors who you know some of these people are going to go on to do even greater thing and and no surprise i think in both movies the the child actors knocked it out of the park kirsten dunn's ben foster elijah wood in the faculty's case I mean, at that point, they're already veterans, so they right. they just, you know, they were on auto drive pretty much. Um, but before we actually uh, get into the movies themselves, I, I just wanted to talk a little bit about high school as a setting, because um, the teen romantic comedy is, you know, a very enduring format. I think um, you know that it's it's in the cultural consciousness when there is a Wayne's brother style parody movie. So not another teen movie, for example, or, um, you know, of course uh, the, all the, the horror movie parodies as well, but both horror movies and rom-coms love going back to high school. Why do you think that is? Uh, I guess, like you said, there's a, a formula to it. And, uh, I don't, I think, I think ultimately the reason why I loved the faculty and the reason why Get Over It kind of didn't do it for me was that they're both like, they're both like knock knock jokes, right? And so high school, high school is the template, it's the formula. And when you hear, when you hear someone about to tell you a knock knock joke, you're kind of like, ugh. All right, here we go. Like, we got to go back to high school. All right, all these teenagers are going to be idiots and they're they're going to be hormonal, uh, young, crazy people who think they know everything, but oh, oh, what little they know. But then, you know, knock-knock jokes, either they're groan-inducing or sometimes you get a good one. Sometimes you get a good one. I, I don't know. I think knock-knock jokes are, are universally groan-inducing, but I mean, I... I more specifically, I mean, what do you think draws adult writers of these genres to tell their stories in a high school setting versus telling a story about adults? Uh, I don't, I don't know, because I don't have a desire to go back to high school. <laughs> um <laughs> I don't, I mean, I had a great high school. I had, I, I loved high school growing up, but I don't. Oh, really? I hated it. <laughs> maybe that's the difference. Uh, maybe the people who are writing high school movies hated high school and the people who aren't writing them had so, a fine time. 
So you think that me and, and Kevin Williamson are like Casey and we wanted to write a redemptive arc for our high school selves? Could be. No, I was going to say, I don't actually think that, that that's what it is. I think that um, as a culture, I think particularly the American culture is obsessed with youth and being a teenager. And I think you can see it too in uh, particularly locally here in Texas in the obsession with high school football and the achievement and the potential of uh, young people. And also um, the setup of, you know, the losing of your innocence, but it's not so much, I think that people are, Inner, people want to go back to a time to before they had lost their innocence, but that were fascinated with witnessing again the loss of innocence and the experiences of youths becoming adult, whether that's through their romances or through, I think, with horror and thrillers where it's focused on a young person, it's always about that tension of finding out that the adults who should be authority figures are untrustworthy or criminal or aliens in in certain instances. Uh, and then, of course, in Get Over It, part of the humor comes from the fact that, you know, Burke's parents aren't trustworthy adults. So in, in both cases, they're at this point in life where they're losing their innocence and now... <laughs> what you thought of as being the people worthy of trust who are going to protect you and guide you have nothing to offer. I don't know. That sounds like a a different experience than mine. But as you were saying that, I thought I want to change my answer. Okay. What's your answer now? Okay. My answer now is that high school provides universal high stakes on a relatable small scale. Actually, I think that that makes a lot of sense because you can believe sort of the seriousness with which the high school characters are referring to the plot as this is my life. Right. You know, Um, but it it means the the school musical means something. The, The high school football game is actually a life or death situation. Right. Yeah. It feels like there's a lot riding on it. So, uh, yeah, I think, like you said, it's at least in America, there's a, a lot of pressure in high school. There's a lot of pressure to do good and and that, you know, this could be your entire life. Your entire life starts after, you know, you you prove yourself in that moment to to you know, nail the big play or catch the big pass or defeat the giant alien. This is going to define you for the rest of your life. (laughs) Right. High school never Uh, ends. Yeah. And I think that's why they're both fantasy films too, right? They both uh, get over it ends on an actual fantasy. And then uh, faculty is obviously about aliens. 
I mean, it, it does end on, I feel like having a bunch of reporters show up to school is as much a fantasy as, as walking into the enchanted forest. <laughs> yeah, the, the guy who started out the movie getting his nuts banged into a pole, a flagpole, ends the movie with everyone in the country seeing him with a hot girlfriend. And he's a hero. Right. He's a- the world. Yeah, he's a local. He's a local legend. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 I wrote down in my notes when I saw the ending, the fantasy ending of Get Over It. Um, I, I wrote down Greece ending. You know, in the movie Greece, when Sandy and Danny get into the car and it literally flies away into the sky. And it, it, it seems like it's an homage to that, where we just end the movie on a complete flight of fancy. Yeah, I have never seen Grease the movie. <laughs> and when I No, I've never seen it. But when I first saw whatever it was that I first saw parody that end scene, I was like, oh, ha ha ha, that's silly, whatever. And then I actually saw the end scene. I was like, oh, shit. No, that was that was it. They did it. They just took it and did it. I mean, there uh, was really nothing left for them to say. Right. So car flies off. Sure. Right. Exactly. Uh, I, I mean, I, I a lot of there's definitely controversy regarding that style of ending. But I, again, you know that I hate realism. So uh, I, I enjoy uh, the fantastical ending. So which movie do you think we should get into first? I don't know. We always start with the rom-com first, but I could go either way on this one. What do you think? Let's start with the faculty. All right, let's do it. All right. So before I get into the summary... What made you want to choose the faculty? Because we haven't done a Robert Rodriguez movie yet. And he's, I, I mean, I would say he might not be the person who got me into filmmaking. I think there's a lot of people who got me into filmmaking. But he is the reason why I'm in Austin. You know, I I, I don't know if I told this story yet. Uh, but in like, I don't know, whatever it was, 11th grade, whenever I was 15 or whatever and saw Desperado, I just thought, yeah, whatever that guy is doing. I want to do that. And so whatever I have to do to do that, you know, I'll, I'll go to Texas, I'll go to Austin, and that's what I want to do. I want to do what he's doing. That's awesome. I I really appreciate Robert Rodriguez. I, I like that he's kept it local. You know, he films his films in Texas. He supports the local filmmaking community. I think he's buddy-buddy with Linklater, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I think, I think that not just as, as a horror icon, but he's done a lot for the, uh, the local community, you know, um, it's kind of a theater kid in high school to no one's surprise. And my theater teacher, Mr. Samuelson insisted on calling Texas the third coast. He was very adamant that Texas as a state for filmmakers and creatives was, you know, just as important as New York or California. Now, New York and California probably would have things to say about that. But uh, as far as Mr. S is concerned, I'll agree with him. We're the third coast. Yeah, I think 
I think Chicago might be <laughs> Chicago <laughs> might, might, might be might chiming in, going, "Hey, listen, we're already second city to to uh, to the Big Apple, but we're not going to play fourth coast to <laughs> to Austin." But they're, not, but they're not, aren't they? They're near lakes. They're not near any coasts. Eh, it's movie magic. <laughs> Oh, oh yeah, but uh, I I appreciate that you chose this movie. Uh, I I mean, this movie came out when I was a preteen, uh, so I was very much into Josh Hartnett's oeuvre uh, at that. that point in time. So I had more of a, a preteen girl orientation to the faculty. It didn't make me want to be a filmmaker. Um, so much as find out more about Josh Hartnett. <laughs> yeah, back when there was only one website for his fan club instead of <laughs> right. sure many, no. many that there are now. That was something that I did uh, not not to get, we can always cut this out if this is too much of a diversion, but uh, I was thinking about, so this, the faculty came out in 1998. Uh, and Get Over It came out in 2001. And even though, you know, I was a preteen in those years, I had the internet, we had the internet, but it wasn't like the internet is now where it's portable and it's interesting. I really did spend a lot of time at the movie theater just going to see any movie that was out simply because that was the only other thing to do besides be at home. And yeah, we had AOL and chat and all of that, but it loses its luster after the first few times. So I almost feel like I, I was part of the last generation that hung out outside. <laughs> yeah, I feel I look back on childhood and I'm just amazed at how not having any responsibilities frees up your time because <laughs> I, I went out side and played at the park a lot i went over to my friends houses and played video games a lot i did stuff with my family a lot i played sports i watched tv i watched movies i, I did nothing but but fun stuff and now now i'm an adult and i have to go to work <laughs> yeah no there there was a, a lot of leisure time i i it's amazing to me that i could be dropped off at a mall for several hours and be completely content yeah just walking around oh walking around meeting people shopping going to see movies whatever is out we would just pick something um, right. and i think that's even how i saw get over it i just was oh let's just see what's playing yeah uh, so I, I, I mean, I was a real, like I told you uh, off the podcast, I was a real connoisseur of teen <laughs> movies uh, during that era. Uh, I saw pretty much everyone that was out. No, this one went, I had not, I didn't even know this movie existed until you mentioned it. It's kind of a sleeper hit. I, I don't know. I, I sometimes want to bring attention to uh, movies that aren't, you know, talked about as much as, you know, it's like there's so many conversations that have already been had about 10 Things I Hate About You or She's All That or I Think I Could Have Even Gone for Drive Me Crazy or Whatever It Takes or A Walk to Remember. There's Can't Hardly Wait. There's, there's just so many options and, you know, 
everybody knows about those movies already. I, I thought, you know, why not give a little bit of attention uh, to one that people don't talk about as much? But we'll get to that later. First, let's get in on the faculty. Let's do it. All right. So Game we, on. we open, we get right into the action with a football just sailing through the air. It's preseason uh, football practice. It's rough. Coach Willis played by Robert Patrick T1000. So good. I, he's, he will always be T1000 to me. He just, he destroys a bench after they're through with practice. He's a football yeah. coach, but he's really giving major Bobby Knight vibes. But he's really a Terminator. He he's really a Terminator. I mean, he's he's just waiting till he figures out which student is John Connor. Uh, so he's getting all mad. He stomps on a ground sprinkler. Uh, but it won't stop spouting water. And then he puts his face against it and something jumps out at him. And then later at a faculty meeting, he stays behind and he follows Principal Drake to her office. And at first it seems like he's flirting with her, but then he starts attacking her. He's chasing her through the halls. She gets up to the doors. They're locked, but through them is another teacher, the drama teacher, Mrs. Olson. Um, but uh, Coach Willis manages to get the principal, and then it turns out that Mrs. Olson has already been body snatched by a parasite, too. So they gang up on Principal Drake, uh, and they, it looks like they kill her. And then we flash to the first day of school, where we get introduced to our breakfast club, high school misfits. Yeah, uh, we got Casey the nerd played by. Eliza I just want to point out real quick that that opening scene where the the nerd or where the principal is getting chased and then it's scary and you expect something to happen. Light. Yeah, and then the teacher turns on her at the end. Uh, this movie has a lot of great reversals. Characters are are reversed and against type, and and little scenes have their own little arcs in reverse. Like that scene does a really good job of setting up the rest of the movie. Oh, yeah. And it, it's sign number one that this movie's written by Kevin Williamson because right. the same thing happens to Drew Barrymore at the beginning of Scream, where you think she's going to be the final girl, um, but then really she's just the first victim. So B.B. Anderson, you know, seems like she's going to survive this, but um, uh, Coach Willis has the stamina of a robot for the future. So right. <laughs> uh, there's really nothing that she can do. So we get introduced on the first day of school to Casey the nerd, Stokes the weirdo, Delilah the mean girl, Stan the jock, Zeke the bad boy, and then Mary Beth the new girl. Uh, Stan decides he wants to focus on grades instead of play football. So the head cheerleader, Delilah, breaks up with him. Zeke is selling drugs at school. Casey and Stokes are bullied. But really, Casey's bullied even harder because, like you said, they're just ramming his nuts into the flagpole for no reason. But this is 1998. The bullying seminars have barely started. Uh, so... Into the fray, we got Mary Beth, who's trying to make friends with Stokes, and then she's attracted to Z. So Casey finds a weird creature on the football field, and he presents it to the science teacher, Mr. Furlong, played by 
Daily Show host John Stewart looking fine with a with some facial hair. Um, yeah, what a throwback, John Stewart. Yeah, back when he was acting in uh, those death to smoochy days. Uh, so Mr. Furlong puts the they they splash it with water. They find out it reacts. They put it in a tank. Uh, but when Mr. Furlong tries to touch the creature, it bites him. Yeah. And um, when they splash it with water, they do it accidentally. They do it because teenagers are being teenagers. Yes. Um, but but they're having a whole science moment. It's very um, proto-Stranger right. Things. And then later, Stan the jock is taking a shower, and he is shocked when an incoherent teacher, Mrs. Brummel, wanders in, and he touches her hair, and part of her scalp comes off. He makes Casey go for help, and they don't know what happens to her. And then later, while working on a story for the school newspaper, which is, I guess, some kind of gossip rag, uh, Casey and Delilah sneak into the teacher's lounge. uh, And then when Coach Willis, Mrs. Olson, and Nurse Harper, played by Salma Hayek, walk in, they hide in the closet. Classic horror movie move. Uh, too late, though, they realize they are sharing that closet with none other than the dead body of Mrs. Brummel, but they can't leave. Uh, outside the closet, they witness Coach Willis and Mrs. Olson force the same parasitic alien into Nurse Harper's ear. So now Casey and Delilah, they know about the aliens. It's on. Casey calls the police, but when the cops and his parents get to the school, the teachers convince them that Casey is just a troubled teen, which is, I think, one of the fun things about using teens as your protagonist in a horror movie or a thriller is that they're un, they're unreliable witnesses. And so you you can stir up the tension by having them, you know, be the boy who cried wolf or speak truth to power, but because they're teenagers nobody believes them it's a very it's it feels real and it's a it's a great way to use teenagers i don't know but it's also extremely silly because they they attack the terminator right because they make a sound in the closet and he and they they get caught so they have to attack and fight their way out and instead of being confronted by the staff they're they're like super supported by the staff who are their enemy. They know they're the enemy, but the enemy is going, no, it's okay, officer. He's just, uh, he just wants a little attention. And it makes that whole scene really funny. Oh, it makes the scene funny, but it also, you know, adds to that tension of not knowing that, you know, it's futile to to get help from the expected authority figure. So they they immediately knock the question, well, why don't they just go to the police? Well, right. the police believe the the adults who are possessed. So it's the, um, it's the Hitchcock idea, right? Of having the bomb underneath the table. The aliens are the bomb underneath the table. So it makes that whole conversation, even though it's extremely silly, it just ups the tension because the whole time you know that bomb is ticking. Right. That's a good point because they make a very deliberate choice to, at the very beginning of the movie, before the protagonists are even introduced to Clovis and and the fact that, yes, 100% alien parasites are taking over people's bodies. It's just a matter of when people find out, which is, again, 
so much better than leaving your twist until the third act of the movie. But I think that they find a way to have it both ways. And yeah. we'll, we'll get to it. We'll get to that. Um, so Casey's dad, who's played by Shooter McGavin from <laughs> Happy Gilmore, mm-hmm grounds him and he when he gets home the next day delilah and nerd drag confronts casey they agree to meet in the science lab later delilah brings stan and casey brings stokes because they believe that they're going to help meanwhile mary beth and zeke zeke are having uh tete-a-tete they're flirting in the storeroom and they hear the other misfits talking so they decide to go into the lab to scare them and then that's when mr furlong comes in and casey just blurts out his aliens theory which mr furlong immediately proves right by uh trying to choke slam the students who are trying to leave so zeke attacks him with the blade off of a paper cutter, which genius prop use. Uh, And then he slices off Mr. Furlong's fingers, but then they crawl back to him because he's got alien regenerative powers now. Zeke stabs him in the eye with one of his drug pens. The drug is called Scat. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it kills Mr. Furlong instantly. They take the alien slug that pops out of him back to Zeke's house for testing uh, where we learn that the alien survives on raw water, but a diuretic like caffeine will kill the alien. And so then they do kind of uh, just like in the thing when they test people's blood. Uh, it, it's I feel like it was a, an homage to that kind of thing. So now we're going to find out if any of the misfits are possessed. That scene is so good, man. Right? <laughs> when, I, when I realized they were doing the thing, because I haven't seen this movie since. They were definitely either. doing the thing thing. Oh, when I realized they were doing the thing thing, I was in heaven. It was so great. Would you say that uh, the thing thing is one of your catnips? No, not that it's a catnip. It's it's just a much appreciated homage that. You know, it's it's like spoofing. It's like um, the paintball episodes of Community. It's they're spoofing it, but they're spoofing it within the the characters and within the world that they've set up. So yeah, um, yeah, I th- I just thought it was great. Yeah, no, I, so so we proceed. Casey does it first, and then we get Stan and Zeke and Stokes do it. Uh, but then Delilah says that she will only take the drug if Mary Beth does it at the same time. But Mary Beth doesn't want to because she's allergic. Uh, while Mary Beth appears to be snorting her dose, Delilah reveals that she was already... Uh, infected by the aliens and the group attacks her but she gets away in a car of one of the infected teachers so the group goes back to the school during the friday night football game to find the alien queen because they think killing the alien queen is going to cure the rest of them they think that it's principal drake so they get to the school where the football game's happening and the, the parasite is being spread uh, and they know after tonight, it's all over. It's just going to be, you know, coronavirus. Um, <laughs> it's going to be everywhere. Uh, yeah. so- and, and as far as the knock-knock joke analogy goes, I'm sure that there's a better analogy for it. But that that scene of Robert Patrick with the fireworks going off behind him after his football team's been dominating, that's like... Very varsity blues. <laughs> uh, it, but with, you know, like it only works... Because Robert Patrick is the Terminator 
and he is such a good bad guy and oh my god it's oh yeah no i i definitely felt like every time he faced off with elijah woods he was about to say have you seen this boy (laughs) (laughs) uh so yeah robert robert patrick is giving us um major t1000 liquid steel masculinity uh, meanwhile, the students uh, corner Principal Drake in the gymnasium uh, and they kill her. But Mary Beth uses up most of Zeke's drug stash, which leaves two pens left. Uh, so Tan, Stan takes one of the pens with him when he goes to check on the players on the field to see if that worked. Uh, but when he comes back to the door, Uh, They're not sure if he's been infected, so they roll the last pen under the door to see if he's going to take it, where he dumps it out and reveals that he was infected by the parasite, and so they got Stan. Mm, That was was great when he poured it out. Uh, Uh, Oh, that was was great. And then it came after an important romantic moment between him and Stokes where oh, yeah. the, of course you know by breakfast club law uh, the jock has to fall for the weirdo uh, it's the law uh, so now we've got a pickle Zeke has more in his car uh, but he needs to go out there so he uses Casey as a distraction so uh, Elijah Wood runs around getting chased by the host while Zeke uh, goes into his car where he has a showdown with uh, Jean Grey, Miss um, oh, wow. Burke, the teacher, uh, and and she's got a bit of a Terminator in her too. She's a very uh, sexy, confident lady. Oh, very in charge. <laughs> I, I wonder, is this your crush? <laughs> Oof, yeah. You know, uh, are you a Community fan? Uh, I I mean, I I watched it on and off. Uh, there's a part in Community where the dean says, oof, this better not awaken anything in me. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, especially when her severed head uh, <laughs> tentacled back to her. Did that, did that stir the pot? Oh, yeah. I got real big into the <laughs> tentacle stuff. No, that's kind of gross. <laughs> yes. But um, hey, we don't kink shame on this show, right? Uh, that's true. If you are into tentacles, male, female, fluid, um, that is your business. Um, you know, I bet that there is some, you know, Erdrich horror porn out there that's cephalopod, Lovecrafty, and monster. Oh, and I'm sure. And pairings. Uh, I'm sure it's out there. I'm sure it's beautiful. Uh, so meanwhile, while that's happening, Mary Beth and Stokes are in the gym and then Mary Beth reveals that she was the alien queen all along and she knocks Stokes down just as Casey gets back inside. So Mary Beth is then chasing Stokes and Casey through the gym, uh, and then she chases them into the indoor pool, which I felt was very proto. It follows, you know, got to get those teens in an indoor pool fight. Uh, it's very tense. Uh, in, in, um, in It Follows, that's kind of the weakness of the monster, in a way. But in this movie, water is the strength. Yeah, it's interesting. So in this movie, in It Follows and in Jennifer's Body, all teen horror movies all have important climactic showdowns with the monster in the pool. 
Yeah, I think um, I never saw the remake, but I think Let the Right One In has a, a oh, also sort of climactic pool. pool scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, love, love to have pool scenes in the teen horrors. Uh, so Mary Beth knocks Stokes into the pool with her, but Casey manages to fish her out. Uh, and then she chases them into the locker room where she removes, re, uh, reverts to her human form, but now she's naked. Uh, and then Zeke shows up and Mary Beth tries to trick him into thinking that Stokes is the one that's infected, but he doesn't fall for it. And then she reveals because she's naked. <laughs> <laughs> because she's naked and that's uh, a little bit odd that's a um, little bit of a clue yeah and uh what what yeah only only aliens walk around naked as hot blonde women right um, there's a movie there's an 80s movie that's like that too right species species yes yeah exactly so she's she's pulling she's pulling a species uh but you know she reveals that she tricked them into thinking that she took the drugs. She didn't take the drugs. And then she changes back to her alien form. She knocks Zeke out. Uh, Casey then finds out that Stokes got infected. So he has to fight her too. He locks her into a, like a ball cage or something. Uh, and then he manages to take the last of Zeke's drugs. He lures Mary Beth in the alien form back to the gym. He goes to the bleachers, presses the button to make the bleachers collapse, and then makes Mary Beth chase him through where she gets pinned as the bleachers uh, move against the wall. And he uses the last of the drug to kill her. She dies. We flash forward. Zeke is playing football while Miss Burke watches suggestively from the bleachers. Uh, Stan and Stokes are now dating. She's cleaned up her uh, her smoky eye and is uh, a little more conservatively dressed. And now Casey and Delilah are dating too. And a news crew is approaching newly crowned local hero Casey to get an interview. Yeah, great movie. <laughs> I I thought that the 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 epilogue was a little bit cheesy. I I feel like you could have. So, for example, in The Breakfast Club, after all the teen drama, all the angst, it's time for everyone to part. And you end with John Nelson raising his fist in the football field. It's, you know, ambiguous but fun. Whereas I feel like, I don't know, I wasn't as into the epilogue for the faculty because they just tried to close the loop on everything when I think you could have just had the core misfits, you know, stumbling away from the wreckage, knowing that they survived and movie. You don't need to end with reversal of fortune. Now Casey's the cool guy and Zeke's yeah, not a, a misfit. It, yeah, it everything, is everything after high school is a fantasy because when you're in high school, you have no idea what's coming after. So you might as well just enjoy the moment. So, um, yeah, I, it's funny that you bring up the breakfast club because I have a different movie that I want to bring up. And I don't know if you're familiar with the boom goes the dynamite type jokes. Um, no. Are you talking about porkies or, you know, like eighties teen movies where they're raunchy? No. So I'll, I'll, I'll clue you in on to what a boom goes the dynamite joke is. 
This, uh, uh, within the past few days, I watched a fun sci-fi movie about a down-on-his-luck, self-perpetuated loner who teams up with a set of unlikely heroes. The movie's very economical, has scenes with its own little arcs, plenty of setups, callbacks, and fun twists. And at the end of the day, they have to defeat a giant alien thing with world-ending implications, and uh, the main hero ends up with a pretty girl. But enough about the fifth element... <laughs> so you're saying who goes the dynamite this is uh this is just like the fifth element yeah but the, the one of the big things i've always struggled with is what's the difference between an a genre movie and a b genre movie like how can you have how can you have sci-fi have both a movies and b movies and what is the difference and i think so the b difference movies are produced by miramax that could be that could be a, a big part of it. Uh, the, I both think the biggest Max movies, by the way, both of them. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even recognize that. Um, for the Fifth Element, though, it's it's all about the relationships, right? So the relationship between um, Bruce Willis and Lilu, and the character has to overcome something internal, right? He's, he's walled off emotionally at the beginning. And by the end of the movie, even though he's the super actiony tough guy, the, one of the most badass super actiony tough guys, right? Anyone else want to negotiate at the end of the day, he's got to open himself up emotionally, you know, and he's got to, um, he's got a big internal moment that he has to overcome. Whereas at the end of the faculty, it's all about the situation and genre around Elijah Wood. You know, it's he's got to go from he's got to change from incapable to capable physically. And it's a big external thing he has to fight, which is a giant alien monster. I think that's the difference between an A movie and a B movie is relationships versus genre. Interesting. So would you say then an A movie is better at expressing internal conflicts and a B movie is more focused on the external conflict? Yeah, I would think that's a good summary of it. Right. I mean, all of the all of the the misfits, as I call them in the faculty, have problems. Uh, Casey's dad's a douchebag. Delilah's parents are alcoholic, apparently. Zeke's parents aren't even there. Um, Stokes hates everyone. I, so they they give them problems, but they give them problems, or Stan doesn't want to be just a jock, but they give them problems in broad strokes. Right. And even though they give us visual shorthand for those problems being solved by the end of the movie, it, it's a backseat to the alien drama. Uh, one thing I wanted to point out is, what do you think of the fact that uh, alien possession equals instant makeover? So I liked it. In because we, the audience, it's like you said, we, the audience, already know that the threat is real from the first act. So by having fun with it and saying, oh, no, they're definitely an alien is a lot of fun because it's usually the faculty that goes through those changes. The, the students... Those are twists. Every time a student changes, oh my God, it's a twist. But whenever the faculty changes, oh no, we get to just have fun with them. It's kind of a an interesting twist on the makeup for or makeover formula because none of the students get beautified. I mean, at, at the very end of the movie in the epilogue, Elijah Wood 
puts his hair back and uh, Clea Duvall stops wearing eyeliner. Um, but usually makeovers are reserved for those characters. But then um, it's Mrs. Olsen, Piper Laurie, who takes off her glasses and ponytail to reveal that she's sexy or um, uh, Mrs. Uh, or sorry, Miss Miss Burke, the uh, the student or sorry, the teacher that's into Zeke because she kind of starts off being a, a quiet, nerdy lit teacher. And then she gets all saucy after she gets possessed. And now uh, she's interested in the new football captain. It's a fantasy. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, but, but it's, it's a fantasy is, isn't the only thing. I don't think that that's just an excuse. It, it does. It's, I don't know. I don't know really, really what I'm trying to say. I, I just mean that it's a fantasy isn't just an excuse for the way that the movie is the way it is. It's, you know, very intentional. And both movies, I think, are very referential. So, mm-hmm. you know, where in Scream, what's his name character explains all the horror movie rules. Oh, yeah. Uh, and... Yes. And then in this movie, it's Stokes, it's Clea Duvall, having been the sci-fi reader, she understands what's going to happen when the body snatchers come. And right. so she brings her genre knowledge into the conversation. So I, it's, you know, it's not just, it's a fantasy, it's a very self-aware fantasy. I think yeah, that's the what characters, I'm The characters treat the fantasy seriously whereas in get over it the characters don't really treat the fantasy seriously you know ben foster's parents are acting like oh it's okay throw a party at our house we just wish we came home earlier and he's like no yell at me like no teen would would say that you know it's not treating the world seriously so it's got more of that sitcom-y vibe i don't know were your parents really permissive uh, they were not overly permissive, not overly strict. They were cool parents. So I, I kind of, I, I mean, my parents weren't like like Ben Foster's parents in that movie, but um, uh, my parents were very laissez-faire, kind of do whatever you want. We won't tell you what to think or what to do. And I can understand being in a position where you wish that they pushed back and kind of gave a fuck more. Uh, yeah, do, you, do you think that you understand that now, or did you understand that as a teenager? In, in, in some cases, I, I understood that as a teenager. I, I can relate a little bit to, to what um, Burke and Zeke were feeling towards their parents. Maybe that's why you like this movie more because you can relate to that idea of, you know, being a little more self-aware then. Whereas, you know, in my high school, uh, I was... I wouldn't necessarily say, oh, we'll we'll get into what I like about Get Over. It's... I don't always like a movie because it's relatable and I don't necessarily find, um, although, you know, having to get over a breakup is obviously universally relatable. That's not what I think makes that movie special. I think it does come back to the fantasy element that you're talking about that makes the faculty so fun, but also that it's a highly self-aware referential fantasy that's uh, a little bit more 
frothy. It's not self-serious. This right. is a world where Elijah Wood can find a squid tadpole on a football field, take it into a science class and have everybody take it uh, completely seriously and accept it as fact. So, uh, for example, I, I kind of uh, I mentioned Stranger Things that felt pre-Stranger Things. So there's a world that's very fantastical and frothy, but likes to really have fun with how self-aware and referential they are when they go through the fantasy. And I think sometimes there can be a way where you do that pastiche where it feels tired or wrote or just falls flat. And I think that might be why Get Over It uh, didn't work as much for you, even though it's doing a lot of the same things, I think that uh, what the faculty was doing. Another thing I actually really liked about the faculty is the bleacher kill. So each of the kills in the faculty used settings and props that were very local to the high school experience. So taking the blade off a paper cutter, I can't think of how many times I've seen the paper cutter at school and thought, what if this sliced my fingers off? Because it's a big, sharp blade on a hinge. And then the bleachers coming against the wall, it's just, it's taking, I think what you talked about earlier, taking the mundane, the everyday experience of high school, and then making the stakes life or death. Right. Yeah. Good movie. It was a lot of fun. Should we get on to, uh, well, before we do remixes, let's talk crushes. Oh, yeah. So there's a lot of lady crushes in this movie that are just physically attractive, like regular crushes. So you have Selma Hayek, Famke Jensen, uh, Clea Duvall. Uh, I mean, Jordana Brewster and who's the other the other one? The, the girl? Clea Duvall? No, the other, the blonde girl, the new newbie, Mary Beth. Mary Beth. Character. I don't know the actress's name. Um, but you know, like, okay, they're pretty too. Uh, but my crush, when I first saw this movie, I saw it with a friend, and we watched it at home, and we both pegged right away that Elijah Wood was going to be like the first to go, because he was so. And we didn't know how these kinds of movies worked, so we were young and stupid. So we're like, oh, Elijah Wood, look at that face. He's going to be the first to go. And then by the end of the movie, we were like, holy shit, he made it. Not only did he make it, but he was the hero. That's crazy. So that was sort of my first interaction with that kind of, you know, Ash, Evil Dead, you know, nerd to hero in one movie uh, thing. So I, I have a huge crush on Elijah Wood in this movie. Was this your first Elijah Wood movie? I'm sure he, he's been in so much stuff. I'm sure that there was a movie before that, but this was the first movie that I can think of where I remember. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I remember Elijah from that movie. I don't know. I feel like I pegged him for a final boy because I, I'd, I'd seen the good son uh, before this. And, and uh, that's one of those movies that's just burned into my retinas forever. Uh, and uh, he survived evil child Macaulay Culkin. So I, I figured oh, that he yeah. had stuff 
uh, to survive aliens. I have um, no shame in saying that something that was really obvious and predictable just completely went over my head because I was enjoying the movie. I wasn't thinking mm-hmm. about the end. I was like, oh my God, look at all this cool stuff that's happening right now. Yeah, no, I, I, I enjoy that too. And you're just, you know, you're just along for the ride. For example, that happened to me when uh, I watched Galaxy Quest for our podcast. I just stopped even recording notes because I was enjoying the movie so much. Right. Uh, I would say that for this though, um, uh, certainly Famke Jen- Jensen is, is amazing. It's just so powerful. And uh, she's the focus of my, or her character is the focus of my remake. I got to give it to Robert Patrick T1000. Oof. I mean, He's so menacing. He he's does so a, good. He does a great dead stop run where he's just, you know, full speed coming at you. Like I said, he runs like a robot from the future. Right. Yeah, he's got a very Tom Cruise-esque run. Mm-hmm. Do you think um, Do you think Tom Cruise could outrun T-1000? Oh, yeah. I mean, I know that he could outrun Robert Patrick, but T-1000... Yeah, but T-1000 is the bad guy. Tom Cruise is the good guy. I I know, but he's also (laughs) a liquid metal robot from the future. Right, that's true. (laughs) It'll be a tough one. Ethan Hunt versus the Terminator. Now I want to see it. Yeah, I would would watch that, that crossover. So... How, I, I'm curious, did you find turning this into a rom-com difficult or easy? Nope. I did the, uh, when we did our Roger Corman uh, Forbidden Planet, uh, I think that was the name of that movie, right? Uh, Forbidden Planet one, I said, I'm just going to do the Roger Corman method, which is embrace the B-movie aspect and write this movie in 15 minutes. I wrote this movie in 15 minutes. Uh Uh, I spent way too long on my Get Over It remake. So in order to balance that out, I said, you know what? I'm running out of time. We're going to record soon. Uh, 15 minutes. Here we go. (laughs) I mean, I I think that's fine. I I figured that in general, um, I'm going to spend more time fleshing out my rom-com scripts and you're going to spend more time uh, fleshing out your horror scripts, but I'm I'm yeah. always interested. I never would have guessed that your, your takes. Oh, you wouldn't yeah. have. No, uh, I you would have thought that I'd it. spend more time on the horror movie, but. Oh no! Know. I'm. I thought that you do spend more time on the horror movies. Oh, oh, oh. you mean on turning the horror movies into rom coms? Right. Yeah. Because it's more of a challenge. It's outside of my genre. I don't know. I thought that it'd be easy to turn a movie into a horror movie. I'm like, yeah, I know how to, I know how to make horror movies. You know what it is? I think that it's harder the more that you care. Yeah, um, for sure. So where uh, when you're dealing with your genre, that's your baby, and you want to take care of your baby. Uh, when it's the other person's genre, it's more like you're an aunt or uncle and you've been tasked with watching that kid for a day. So it's, you know, you you can keep it safe and you can bring them home with all their limbs attached. You're a tourist. Uh, You don't live there. Exactly. So it's, it's a lot easier and low pressure. You're just like, I just have to keep them alive for this period of time and bring it home. 
So yeah. there's a, a lot less pressure attached to it. No, oh, yeah. Again, something that was predictable and obvious just went completely over my head. So <laughs> uh, I'll go first on this one, I guess, okay. because um, because it'll be super quick. I just have one page full of brief notes, and then we can get into dissecting yours. Oh, uh, I just have an astronaut. I guess we'll just call him Elijah Wood because I didn't come up with a character. An astronaut has a nerdy childhood. And then he grows up to be a hero. And then he grows up to, to be the first man who's going to land on a comet, right? And so once he lands on the comet, you know, the world is watching, all that stuff. He lands on the comet, and the comet turns out to be basically the, the space version of a school bus. And he gets stuck on this school bus, and he has to go to the facility. And the facility is a sort of galaxy high school. So it's for all the different aliens in all the galaxy to come together and learn how to interact with each other. Because if we're going to be living together as a galaxy, what better way to learn about each other than high school? So he's in the alien version of high school and then hijinks happen. So I'm going to blast through my second act in conflict and we'll just say that there's hijinks. The aliens can be a mix of scary and silly and sexy. And the high school aspects are, you know, he feels alienated, but he feels like he has to perform because he's representing his entire species. And he's got these ideals of like what it means to be a human. But, you know, maybe those get challenged because other, other aliens have other ideas. And at some point he fixes a tracker, right? Because he wants to get off the, he wants to get out of high school. He wants to go back home. But... Then, then there's something happens at the end. He's in graduation or something, and and the humans show up to 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 get him back. And they say like, "Oh, we're here to bust you back. Uh, you know, we we used your tracker, and and we're here to take you back." And maybe it's like a screen, like a little screen, and his parents are there. So it's it's not graduation, but it's. Did you have moving up day when you were in high school? No. no, moving up day was where you just got together as all the grades and, and, you know, you sat outside and, and all the grades were together and you went like, ninth graders are officially 10th graders. Woo! And you all celebrate and it's, it's a moving up day. So he, he's at moving up day and his parents basically in the government call him on their little telephoto drone phone. And they're like, Hey, you got to come back home. And he's like, uh, you're embarrassing me in front of all of my new friends. And then they're like, no, come back home. And he's like, I'm going to stay. And they're like, what are you going to do? And he's like, I'll send you a report card. And then he turns off the TV. And then uh, he kisses the sexy alien girl that he likes. And the whole school rocks out. And um, then at the end of the movie, during the credits, we'll have it, it flash forwards to summer school. And then we get that sort of Animal House-esque, this is what happened to this character. Oh, epilogues for it. everyone. Epilogues for everyone. Yeah, they do that in, uh, did you ever watch Can't Hardly Wait? Maybe, but I'm going to say no. But yeah, they uh, they start the movie similar to the faculty where they introduce each character um, with a title card with their name, but in Can't Hardly oh, yeah. Wait, it's their college or their senior page with the college they're going to and their interests and 
you know, who they are. And then at the very end of the movie, they do a freeze frame of everybody and their different fates. Uh, So, yeah, it's a very end of high school movie trope. Yes. Expertly lampooned in Wet Hot American Summer. Oh, yeah. I, oh, God, (laughs) that movie is such a great, uh, it's just such a great parody of teen summer movies. It's it's perfect. Uh, It's absolutely perfect. (laughs) So I'm curious to hear the, the... the new masterpiece. Oh gosh. Well, I, I went on a tear, uh, earlier, uh, last week I was talking to a friend of mine about Korean dramas because she's just getting into them. And let me tell you, if you think those Koreans know their horror, (laughs) they know even more about doing a fun, frothy rom-com. Uh, they're amazing. And in fact, uh, my inspiration for this remake is one of my favorite dramas. It's a very silly English translated name called Biscuit Teacher Star Candy. But <laughs> so I bet it I bet it sounds better in Korean. I'm sure I'm sure it makes more sense in yeah. Korean. Or maybe it doesn't, but it's maybe it, it rhymes. It probably works um, in in some in some way, but the English translation is "biscuit teacher star candy," or I think I've also heard it called "greatest teacher." Um, but it's it's about a high school a troubled high school student who falls for his teacher. But I think that the ages of the seniors in high school in Korea is a year older than the seniors in the United States. So it's, I don't know, it's not, it's still controversial, but it's not as like, ew, high school student and teacher gross. It's not Um, as illegal. It's not as super illegal. But also in the case of Zeke and Miss Burke, uh, he was held back a year. So he's really 19 or 20 uh, when the events of the faculty are taking place. So right. I'll just make that uh, disclaimer before I, I get into this student-teacher romance story that I wrote. Uh, okay, so the name of the movie is Goodbye, Miss Burke. Uh, and first act, we've got, uh, you know, Famke, Elizabeth Burke. She's just earned her teaching license. So again, we can assume that she's a very young teacher, uh, but she's struggling to find a position. Every high school that she applies at turns her down. And then her best friend, Rosa, who's a school nurse at their alma mater, their old high school, suggests that Elizabeth applied there so that they can work together. But it's the one place that Elizabeth doesn't want to apply because of two reasons. First of all, as a senior student, she was expelled for beating up a male student that had harassed Rosa. And then she's pretty sure that Principal Burke, who in this, or Principal Drake, who in this version is um, older, still hates her for being the bad kid. And the other reason is that she also had a crush on her old teacher, Mr. Furlong, and she is too embarrassed to work with him as co-workers. 
Um, but um, Rosa gets her to give it a shot. And then Elizabeth goes in for her interview, but it's disastrous. We'll, we'll say like most rom-com heroines, uh, Elizabeth is probably pretty clumsy. Um, so she, she just makes a mess of it. And Principal Drake remembers who she was and it's all blah. And so she leaves thinking that this is just not going to happen. And then that's when uh, she gets to the parking lot and sees Zeke Tyler for the first time. And just like in the faculty, he's dealing drugs to students right there and it's next to her car, but she's just had enough for one day. So she calls Zeke out. He starts to sass her in his classic Josh Hartnett bad boy way, offering her laxatives and condoms, which Mm -hmm. just... One of the most absurd, I mean, you can say it's a fantasy, but the idea that this student who deals drugs is going to tauntingly offer laxatives and flavored condoms to a teacher is just crazy. Um, But I, I I just decided to borrow that scene and it's totally inappropriate Elizabeth tells him that he's very rude and she proceeds to kick his ass. Uh, And Principal Drake witnesses everything. Oh, no. Uh, But Principal Drake is like, "Uh uh-huh. So that night, Elizabeth gets a call that she has gotten the job of homeroom teacher for senior class 1A, um, but she has a special assignment. She has to keep Zeke Tyler out of trouble, uh, and that's how she'll keep her job. If she doesn't keep him out of trouble, they fire her. So she's getting hired solely because this student has become such a problem. They need someone who can rein him in, and they're like, let's hire the lady who kicked his ass in the parking lot. It's perfect. Um, so Elizabeth, she's got her work cut out for her. We're getting into the more middle act stuff of the movie, uh, because the class is just filled with a band of rebellious misfits. You know, we got Casey, the nerd and bitchy Delilah and, you know, our, our, our folks, our misfits. So at first Zeke is able to get the students united against her and they try to make her life a living hell, but they don't know that she used to be the bad kid. So she knows all of their shit and they learn about her reputation in school where she was called Burke the Turk. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, and she's just, you know, she's seen it and she's done it all before. So you've got kind of uh, a, Uh, the kids versus her situation, but she starts to turn them over to her side by being really cool and, you know, like understanding like what they're doing. Uh, So she dismantles their pranks and she starts to earn their appreciation. Uh, And then she, you know, like any inspirational film teacher, she helps all of the students with their individual problems. So, um, she helps Delilah get a scholarship. Um, she helps Casey be more assertive. Um, maybe she helps Stokely with her science fiction writing career, gets her to submit to some competitions and helps Stan with school. And then all the while, Zeke is seeing her do all this and they're getting closer too. And she's learning why he's so troublesome. And it basically has to do with his 
parents ignoring and abandoning him. But he won't stop dealing drugs. Uh, and, and she feels like she can't get through to him. But he is starting to fall in love with her because she's doing all these wonderful things. And it's like he's never seen a lady as cool as Famke Jemsen before. Uh, so he doesn't know, though, that she's, of course, into Jon Stewart, Mr. Furlong. So one day after school, Zeke decides he's going to tell her how he feels. Uh, but then he runs into her uh, confessing to Eddie, Mr. Furlong, that she likes him. So just as they agree to date is when Zeke is, you know, going to confess to this teacher that she he's in love with her. Um, so he's just totally crushed. Uh, and then uh, as they continue to date, he starts acting out even more. And then Elizabeth keeps him after class one day and is like, what's going on with you? And then because he's a dumb kid, he tries to kiss her. Uh, and there's a moment of hesitation because, of course, there's some sexual tension there. Um, but she pushes him away and gives him a speech basically telling him that he needs to grow up. She's in a relationship with a man, not a boy. He's 19, but he's still a kid, which is in a realistic situation what you would probably do if a student came on to you. Uh, but he's like, I'm in love with you. And then she says, no, I'm so sorry. Um, but yeah, so he's heartbroken. But then this is when he starts to change his life around. So we get a third act heel turn or, or sorry, face turn. <laughs> Um, yeah. where now the misfits that Miss Burke helped before help Zeke change his act. So Casey and Delilah make him join the newspaper. Uh, he plays football with Stan. Stokely recommends Heinlein novels. He starts to, you know, clean up his act for real. And Elizabeth is super proud of him, um, but they're kind of cold to each other now. Uh, and then her relationship with Mr. Furlong isn't going well. And he accuses her of being attracted to Zeke. Mm. Uh, but she gets really embarrassed and defensive. He won't stop pushing it. But, and so they break up. So we get to the last day of class. She gets into the classroom and sees that there's a large custom wrestling championship belt on her text with the, with the custom text, Burke the Turk undisputed teaching champion. Um, but, you know, in, in every inspirational teacher movie, at the end of the movie, you always got to have that moment where the teachers give back, or sorry, the students give back to the teacher and the teacher learns that they're, um, you know, their crazy unorthodox teaching style got through to the students, you know? It's, yeah, for sure. You got to hit that note, right? Um, and so she gives them the meaningful speech about how they all mean everything to her, but then she gives emotional eyes at Zeke in particular. Um, and then she also gives Zeke a letter and admits that she's going to miss him most of all. Um, but he's like, whatever. Uh, and he just, go he puts the letter away and then doesn't look at it. <clears throat> so time jump one year later. Casey picks up Zeke from the airport. They catch up just like, you know, in, in our epilogue to the faculty, Casey and Delilah are now dating, you know, he's a cool guy now. Um, and then Zeke, because he's 
um, because he's a rebel. He's been backpacking across the world. It just it seems like something Josh Hartnett would do. Um, and then he wants to know what happened to Miss Burke, but Casey doesn't know anything. Uh, Zeke finally reads the letter. He finds out that she would she really did have feelings for him, but obviously super inappropriate for them to have a relationship and she was willing to start as friends um at that at that point in time um so we get the big end of the rom-com movie rush where zeke decides he's going to go to the school and confront her but then he finds out when he gets to the school that that year the year that he graduated she was fired due to budget cuts uh, a relatable teacher experience. <laughs> um, and so now he tries to get uh, her info from Rosa, the nurse, uh, who's now dating Mr. Furlong. Uh, and uh, just as she decides to give him the info, Elizabeth shows up because she's come to have lunch with Rosa. So now we're back in the parking lot where Zeke and Elizabeth met the first time when she kicked his ass, um, except this time it's to clarify where things are going. Uh, and he asks her if the feelings that she wrote about are still there. And then she says, let's find out. And they kiss the end. Oh, I like it. Mm-hmm. I, I tried to, I, I mean, obviously it's not, it's not, shot for shot or, or point for point um a remake of the drama i talked about it's inspired by it but um similarly i i jumped through a lot of hoops to make a student teacher attraction not gross <laughs> yeah but i think it's you know it's raising the stakes it's raising the tension it's you know, it's it's it's. I think it's very overboard in how it uh, how it approaches something that should be icky but makes it fun. Oh, you mean the movie Overboard, where he gaslights right. an amnesiac? Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 No, I, I think that that is uh, that is kind of the unique challenge of uh, rom coms is making uncomfortable or potentially icky situations like taboo relationships, kidnapping, uh, acceptable in the name of romantic comedy. Uh, whereas I think that with horror movies, it's a lot easier to make. Uh, mundane or or the ordinary horrible or strange or uh, decrepit uh, than it is to to sort of render the already icky comfortable yeah i i think you're right yeah no i i really uh i really ran away with that one uh i i hope that wasn't ridiculously long I don't know how long it was, but I was listening the whole time and I was making little notes. Oh. Just little like, oh, it, if you did this in this scene, it would add to it. But then I started writing. I probably have too many notes to go through right now. But you, sh I think I think it, it's really good and that we should talk about it because it's good. Oh, fun. Uh, yeah, I know. Now you've got me all flattered. 
Anyway, in the interest of uh, us landing this plane, I, I think we have to we have to move on. All right. So enough about the faculty. I want to know the reason why you picked your movie. Get over it. They're here. The faculty. Uh, I I chose Get Over It. Uh, you know, I, I talked a little bit about it at the beginning of the episode. I, I really, again, wanted to choose a different movie uh, from sort of the normal offerings of teen romantic comedies uh, that you could talk about because so much has been said about those movies already. I also thought that when I saw Get Over It, I felt it was different at the time from other teen rom-coms I saw because it was uh, very clever. I think that Ben Foster is not the typical rom- teen rom-com lead. He's not a Freddie Prinze Jr., or a Josh Hartnett, or Shane West even, who prior to playing the Bellamy in uh, Get Over It, he was in the protagonist, the Ben Foster style role in a movie called Whatever It Takes, where it's a replay of Cyrano de Bergerac, where he helps another guy get with his best female friend and then realizes he's in love with her in the process. So it's, you know, it's interesting to see a method actor or is he a method actor? I don't know. He feels I would maybe method. think so. Uh, maybe his actor, later work does, but this work. An actor with the intensity of yeah. Ben Foster in a role like this. And certainly Kirsten Dunst has done her fair share of teen movies, but I feel like she brings a bit more of a kind of easy naturalism to the the lead female role where she's not uh, really frenetic and type A in the way that a lot of rom-com heroines are, where, you know, the Sandra Bullock heroines are very, you know, very, very high strung in the way that they carry themselves and act, where she's a lot more laid back. So it's kind of a, a different both of them are kind of playing different types of rom-com protagonists. So, uh, but yeah, I, I felt like the movie was really inventive in a way that I think only movies can be where you play with what it's like to experience things like what it's like to experience seeing your ex-girlfriend kiss someone else right in front of you or the experience of walking away from her house um, with all your stuff and feeling it's over, you know, they, they use, they use the medium to dramatize those experiences and then also be highly referential at the same time. So it's, you know, just like you're saying with the faculty, it's a fantasy. I would probably say with get over it. Oh, they're, they're just, they're having so much fun. They're just having a lot of fun with this. I think, I don't think that this was a bad movie at all. In fact, one of the biggest compliments I can give it is I've stated before in the past that I don't think comedy is an inherently cinematic genre and that a lot of comedies kind of just tend to play it more safe, which you could be cynical and say a little bit more flat, but we'll we'll be optimistic here on the show and say they tend to play it safe. 
But I think this movie is an extremely cinematic movie. I think a lot of what they're doing, the a lot of the film work and, and the editing and the, the sets, like when he goes on to the romance show and the whole audience gets to hear about his breakup, like it's a really cinematic, it, the, the cinema makes you feel what Ben Foster is feeling. So I, I don't think they're, and to your point, I feel like whereas other movies are playing it safe, they're not playing it safe at all. Because if you were playing it safe, you wouldn't do that long ass cut at the beginning of the movie where from the moment he leaves her house and walks down the street, it's just all one long take. No, that's extremely cinematic. I don't think that's playing it safe at all. Well, no, Other movies. What I'm saying is that's an example of them not playing it safe. No, the I'm whole agreeing. movie. Yeah, the whole movie is filled with stuff like that. I think we could go on and on and on. Uh, I thought it was great. It's just, to me, the the setup, it's a really great setup to a punchline that just falls extremely flat. And I think that maybe that extreme flatness comes to what we sort of discussed at the beginning of the podcast in terms of our different high school experiences. Where I, I agree. There are some things that about the movie that are, are flat. I think similar to the faculty, sort of the, the, the epilogue to the movie or the, the climax. Uh, well, actually the faculty has a really amazing climax, but then after the climax, in my opinion, it's just kind of like, wah, wah. Um, but similarly with get over it, I feel like they're full steam ahead until the third act and you have to resolve all these threads and they did it kind of messily. Yeah. Uh, I felt, which is, I think that's the biggest thing that I, I didn't like about this movie was I had no expectations going in and I was really surprised by the first two thirds of this movie and for it to feel like it dropped the ball for me was a bigger disappointment because I had no expectations going in and I just could not relate to that third act at all. Um, yeah. I so mean, again, I don't think it's a bad movie. It's just, we'll see in my remake why I spent so much time on it is because I think the movie was really good and I want to see if my version of the movie is good. Ah, all right. Well, let's let's go ahead and and get into the summary so people know what we're talking about. Sure. So, Get Over It is about Burke Landers and his girlfriend Allison and how they were the quintessential high school couple who grew up together and eventually fell in love, but she breaks up with him immediately after the film begins. Uh, so he seeks advice from his embarrassing parents, Frank and Beverly Landers, Ed Begley Jr. Oh my god. He's so great. Uh, and so they are the hosts of a relationship advice show called Love Matters, but they don't help him with the situation by instead focusing on his sex life because they're very open parents. Uh, Allison then starts a relationship with Stryker, a foreign student who was once the lead singer of a boy band called the Swingtown Lads. When Allison and Stryker auditioned... I just wanted to say, I think it's implied that his British accent is fake. I think that it's purposefully meant to be a bad British accent because he's actually not British. Oh, but they never call that out, right? It's just a hidden little character detail. 
Yeah, I, I think that the it's meant it's meant to be part of the thing that makes him such a douchebag that right. in addition to all of this, he would be like Madonna and pretend to have a British accent. I didn't catch up. Uh, I didn't catch that, but that's I can see it. That's interesting. Kind of like how in Heat, uh, Al Pacino, his secret little plot line that they never discussed or anything was uh, that he did coke. And that's how he was able to stay awake and do his job for hours and hours and hours. I, I didn't know that. But anyway, continue. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, we're, we're fans of different genres. And we, we pick out the small things in different genres. Um, so, Allison and Stryker audition for the school's upcoming musical. Burke desperately tries to win Allison back by also auditioning for the play, despite having no theatrical talent and having a busy schedule as a member of the basketball team. Meanwhile, Burke's friend Felix and Dennis try to find a new girlfriend for him. With the help of Felix's younger sister, Kelly, a talented songwriter and singer, Burke wins a minor role in the play, a modern musical version of Shakespeare's comedy, A, Midnight, a Midsummer Night's Dream, called A Midsummer Night's Rockin' Eve, written and directed by the school's domineering drama teacher, Dr. Desmond Oates, played, played. by Martin Short. Yeah, it's very pre-Jiminy Glick. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, you can see how, how Jiminy Glick used Martin Short at his most peak Martin Short. Oh, yeah. Uh, Stryker plays Demetrius. Ellison plays Hermia. Kelly plays Helena. Is that how you yes. say it? Helena. And Lysander is to be played by the school's star actor, Peter Wong. But after Peter is injured in a freak accident, Stryker nominates Bert to take over the role of Lysander. And still intent on winning Ellison back, Burke accepts. He gradually improves with continuing assistance from Kelly, but remains unaware of the growing attraction between the two of them. While searching through props backstage, Kelly accidentally shoots Burke in the arm with an arrow gun, thinking it's a prop. Meanwhile, Oates blames Kelly's singing for his own poor for his own poorly written song and rejects her suggestions to improve it. Felix she came with notes. How I dare know. she give him notes? That's He's the most aggressive thing you could do to a fragile creator. <laughs> uh, I relate. So <laughs> Felix and Dennis set Burke up on a date with Dora, a very attractive but accident-prone woman. The Did date you? ends... Uh, sorry, yeah. uh, just one note about Dora. Did you clock that apparently the reason why she's so much older than them, which, I mean, normally they'd never lampshade in a teen movie, the fact that the actors playing these so-called teens are not teens. Apparently one of Dora Lynn's accidents is she was in a coma for six years. So this is... Uh, what is it? A woman in her twenties who's still a senior in high school. I did not pick up on that. So once again, this is a Shira movie. <laughs> well, no, I just, I just mean I, it again. Both movies, well, both the faculty and this movie features uh, adult women who are interested in high school seniors, apparently. Yeah, no, it's a it's a good poll. It's a good observation. Um, 
So Dora, the date with Dora ends in uh, the date with Dora ends horribly when she inadvertently causes a fire in the restaurant. Later, the boys try again to get Berg's mind off of things by taking him to an underground sex club. However, their attempts fail when Berg is locked into a harness and whipped by a Carmen Electra dominatrix. Behold my majestic corseted form. <laughs> I, I enjoyed her delivery of that line. Uh, yeah, she, she, Carmen Electra, not really known for her acting chops, but she, she played it well in this. Uh, she, she used her screen time well. Uh, the night ends with Felix and Dennis abandoning Burke after the police raid the club, who is then picked up by his parents, much to Burke's chagrin. The parents are actually congratulating him on exploring his kinky sexual fantasies. So, at a party thrown by Felix at Burke's house, Kelly kisses Burke, but he insists that a relationship between them could not work because she is Felix's sister. This is where things start to go downhill. She leaves him, annoyed at his unwillingness to move on with his life, and Felix, coming across the two, punches Burke. At the same party, Burke and Allison catch Stryker cheating on Allison with her best friend Maggie, and so Allison breaks up Gamora. with Stryker. Gamora! I know, that was so great! Uh, meanwhile, Frank and Beverly return home to find the party and once again congratulate Burke, and Burke lambasts them for constantly embarrassing him and not acting like normal parents should in that situation. On the play's opening night, the first half of the pro or actually what what really bothers me is that Felix approaches Burke and punches him for kissing his sister. And then like one or two scenes later, he says to his sister, you know, if he can't see the reason why you're so great, maybe he doesn't deserve you. Like, motherfucker, you punched him. I Wait. How are how is that incongruous with his character saying that later? He punched the guy who who made a move on his sister, and then later she tells him that he needs to back off because she's into Burke and it's his pro and her problem. And then and then and then he says, "Okay, that's fine." And then later he goes to Burke at the very end of the movie and says, "You know, I really don't want you dating my sister, but." It's okay, you can date my sister. Like, fuck you. No, it honestly, it makes sense <laughs> to me where, yeah, he doesn't want his friends dating his sister because it's too close to home and he doesn't think of his sister as being his age, but eventually he has to accept that it's not anything that he has any say in and at the very least, if his sister has to date anyone, it's someone he actually knows is a nice guy. I completely agree with everything you said. I just think the execution of it was not great. I guess I wasn't as charmed by Colin Hanks's I'm not, ugh, baby nobody's, face. Nobody's charmed by Colin Hanks either. <laughs> no, and there's another teen movie star with Orange County where Jack Black plays his deadbeat older brother oh right um yeah no uh colin hanks is eh, he's not my favorite uh i i do like though earlier in the movie he refers to uh shane west as a candy ass and that was right. a very 2001 moment you know when we're still you know this is still the rock era right. Right, right, right. Uh, the attitude era <laughs> so you could say shit like candy ass and it wasn't ridiculous uh, not to mention Dennis is played by one hit wonder 
writer Cisco, he of Thong Song fame. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. He's in the movie, too. He is in the movie as Crazy Legs. Uh, yes, yeah, so... Uh, so, uh, <laughs> on, right, on the play's opening night, the first half of the performance goes smoothly, except for some onstage scuffling between Burke and Stryker. Did During you laugh the, at all at the musical? I thought it was hilarious. I loved not, it. I, like, I, I didn't laugh once. You didn't think it was funny when they said Shakespeare's dead, but we're all here and they're just trying to turn Shakespeare into a freaking Jesus Christ superstar musical? No, because it was so silly and the audience should have known it was silly, but the guy was acting like it was a masterpiece. And then then later, we'll get into it during my remake. I know, but I think the joke could have been better. I don't don't think the movie had the right parts. I think the movie had the right formula, but not the right numbers. I I thought the songs were hilarious. I especially liked the boy band song, Hermia, when Ben Foster and Shane West were fighting each other while doing choreo. Did you ever see see Hamlet 2? It... Definitely had some Hamlet two vibes where where but which movie you know did it's it better. I don't know. I, I thought <laughs> Hamlet two was pretty cringy. I mean, uh, I, I, I feel never saw like it, so I didn't know. I, I, I was testing. But Steve Steve Coogan is doing the same thing as Martin right. Short, where he's a drama teacher with star aspirations, and he decides to turn a school play into his audition tape. You would actually think that this is a movie thing, but again, my high school drama teacher who referred to Texas as the third coast also did a huge, I think it was, it was a really long play that he wrote about the history of Texas that um, the students performed in. Uh, And I had a small role, but, but it's not beyond the realm of imagination that a drama teacher would have these crazy ambitions, but you think it could have been funnier. Do you think Uh, we'll get into it in my room? Okay. So uh, during the intermission, Allison confides to Burke that she wants to get back together with him, leaving him with a difficult choice, uh, which is in quotes because not really uh, a difficult choice between her and Kelly. Meanwhile, Stryker bribes two of the theater technicians to try and blow Burke off the stage using pyrotechnics. Before the play resumes, Felix gives the orchestra sheet music for a love ballad written by Kelly to replace Oates' unpopular tune. Uh, Again, I get what the movie's going for, but we'll see. Uh, After the curtain rises, Kelly sings her song so beautifully that Burke is reminded of their time together and finally realizes he loves her. This was the cringiest part of the movie. Okay, I will agree (laughs) with that. And I've mentioned it before. I don't really like flashbacks that much because I feel if it was really important info for us to know, then you could have told us that information or you could have trusted the audience to understand the weight of that information as it was shown earlier. Him learning that he likes her should have been in the moment, not reflecting on the past. Well, that's the thing is I feel like they're not, they're not trusting the actors enough in the moment to convey the change in those feelings. And so they're relying on the previous shots of their chemistry 
to tell the story when they could have trusted those them to tell the story when they showed us those shots the first time and then let Ben Foster show us his character falling for her because he's a good enough actor to show us that. I think that the movie should have shown, not told the moment. And by showing, not telling the moment, I think they should have shown it in the moment instead of flashbacks are basically in this essence, the visual telling us of, Oh, Hey guys, remember they had a lot of chemistry. Remember that when they had chemistry, like, well, yeah, but that's the thing is like, they're well, not, we'll get, they're in, not we'll get into it during yeah, yeah. the remake. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So here we go. Uh, uh, the audience applauds or as the fourth act begins, uh, he abandons his lines from the script to make up his own verse, professing his love for character for Kelly's character, Helena. The audience applause as Burke and Kelly kiss. Stryker protests the change, but unwittingly signals the technicians to set off the explosions, blowing him off stage into the orchestral section, sending Dora to fly into the air. Felix catches her and they become a couple. Dennis kisses Kelly's friend and dancing partner, Basin, uh, Mila Kunis, and who kisses him back. And it's a cute little callback thing. Uh, Kelly and Burke leave the theater after the show, looking forward to their future together as they discuss the next night's performance. So that's and they walk over into the, they walk into the enchanted forest. Yeah, and then we have a big dance party set to Earth, Wind, and Fire September, as oh, yeah. sung by Cisco and as by sung by Cisco. You don't. You don't under- I don't know. Oh, is it really so bad to end a movie on a big fun dance party? No, it's not. <laughs> That's how I think it's great. Job We Met ends. Yeah, it totally. Uh, Job We Met, the, the Bollywood movies have it right. If you're going to make a silly, fun, romantic comedy, then end on a big bombastic musical number. Yes, I I agree with the the Indians on this one. So I am dying to hear your Get Over It remake. Before we dive right in, and I think you should go first, who do you want to kill from Get Over It? Oof, I want to kill, I guess, uh, what's her name? Allison? The, the, the crush? The, the fake crush, not the real crush. The world is killing Allison, according yeah. to the song. Uh, I I would pick Allison too because I you, you talk about the flatness and get over it. I think that you've got Ben Foster given the most, Kirsten Dunst flying in with a really understated performance. They're both know. great in the movie. And, and they and again, which is why I feel like they could have trusted the actors to still to tell the story with their faces, the intimacy that was growing between them because both. Ben Foster and Kirsten Dunst are great face actors. Um, I think, you know, they could have trusted them to, to show that in the moment. Um, but the actress who played Allison, unfortunately, I felt like her performance in particular was really flat. Like they kept serving her volleys that she just kept letting fall. Yeah. I agree. So I, I, do you want to go first on the remake? Or? Oh no, I want I want you to go first because I'm, right. I'm really curious because you've been you've been teasing it out. All right, here we go. Here we go. I've got pages of this stuff, so I'm gonna try to blast through it. But I, I'm gonna go at a kinetic pace because that's kind of 
the inspiration I felt when writing it was like, I spent way too long thinking about it and then wrote it down all at once, kind of. Got so, it. Landers, uh, I, I uh, do you know Allison's name for her actress? Let me... uh, I don't know the actress's name, but her full character name is Allison McAllister. Okay, Melissa. Melissa is the actress's name, Melissa Sage Miller. I might just use actor names because it, it's more makes more sense to me because the character names sometimes get confusing. So Ben Foster is the theater student. Uh, Melissa, the Allison character, is the soccer student. So already I'm changing everything about this movie. Uh, Kelly, um, uh, Kirsten Dunst, is the piano player with stage fright. And Stryker is the bad, he's the bad, he's bad at theater, but he's the, the snobby rich kid with the rich dad. So we open the movie, all that's not known yet. That's like, uh, we learned that in the opening credits type thing. So the movie opens, again, because uh, this is a horror movie, kind of, technically, not really. Martin Short is reading something out of a newspaper that's about a massacre and it's bloody and gory and it's a sight that's not for any eyes and how ugly and gory it is. And then it turns out to be a critique of his last play and it's the play on opening Brilliant. night. I know. And then the play gets canceled. So, so Martin Short has to go back to school. Right. And he's got to teach. He reluctantly has to teach the high school play because that's the only job he can get. Cut to high school and we start to meet our characters. Stryker uh, may or may not have a crush on Allison. So he tells her about the Martin Short uh, character coming into town. Uh, ben Foster overhears this. And then, or no, Stryker is telling Kelly about the Martin Short character. Mm -hmm. Right. So then Landers. Uh, ben Foster, he overhears this and goes up to Melissa and kisses her right in front of her friends. And they all react like, ooh, because he's a theater kid and they're all soccer jocks uh, or foot, you know, sports jocks. So he goes like, hey, babe, uh, you know, uh, Martin Short's coming and I'm going to go do the play. This is a really big opportunity for me. And she's like, when is the play? And he says, who knows? Like he says, uh, May 4th. Right. And she's like, but I want to watch the big soccer. Maybe it's the World Cup. I want to watch the big soccer tournament that day. And he's like, can't you TiVo it? And she's like, no, you don't even care about me. I want to break up. And she leaves him. And he's like, no. And she's like, oh, get over it. All right. So that's the name of the movie. Oh, and he and gives us like, I don't one want of those to. great Ben Foster screams. Yes. A Ben Foster like, I don't want to get over it. Uh, so then uh, Ben Foster really wants a part in the play, but he's not a singer. And and the reason why Martin Short is turning the, the classic Shakespeare play, it can be any play, Midnight Summer, Midsummer Night's Dream or whatever it is. The reason why he's turning the play into a musical is the rich kid's dad is the big funder of the play and the rich kid is snobby and thinks he's a good singer and he wants to be the lead singer of the musical. So bastard. Uh, so, but, but uh, I think again, some of this might get confusing, but uh, uh, I think maybe um, Ben Foster doesn't know this information yet. So he still thinks he has a chance. 
So Ben Foster, he goes over to Kelly's house and he tries singing, but he's really bad at it. And then he gets a really embarrassing phone call because the song that's his ringtone is, I don't know a 2001's embarrassing song, but the first song that came to my mind was I'm Like a Bird. Who sings that? Nelly Furtado. Nelly Furtado. So I was thinking I'm Like a Bird. And she's like, hey, if that song makes you feel comfortable, you like what you like, Let's sing it. And they start singing the most sexiest, tension-filled, I'm like a bird song duet that you could ever hear. And right when they go to kiss, there's a big interruption. So right away, classic. right away, we know that he has to get over his ex and he's in love with this new girl. Because it's like, boom, instant, the fire, the chemistry is there. So we're at the audition for the play. Stryker goes first and he is bad. So Kelly goes like, hey, it can't be any worse than that guy, right? Then Ben Foster goes up to sing, but he chokes, right? Because he's nervous. Oh, no. So then Kelly, Kelly smiles. And then he gets he gets a second wind. And he's like, wait, can I start over? And because Martin Short doesn't care about the play and he already knows he's going to cast Stryker, he goes... Whatever. So Martin Short in this version isn't a diehard obsessed teacher. He's a whatever. He's a whatever teacher. He's like, I, I don't care. My career is already over. This is the end of the line. Do whatever you want. This rich kid's dad is running the show anyway. I don't care. So Ben Foster goes to start over, but then guess what? Panic. He doesn't know what to do. And then he gets a phone call from his phone that he forgot to set on vibrate. And it's, <gasps> I'm like a bird. Right. So then he gets reinvigorated because he knows and he sees Kelly and she's smiling and she's on the phone. And he's like, that's right. I've got to relax. I've got to sing. I'm like a bird because that was our sexy song and it gives me confidence. But then just as he's feeling the most sexy confidence that he can feel, Allison, Melissa, his ex-girlfriend, comes in and kisses Stryker. So now he's like, what the fuck? And his voice cracks again. And now he's like, oh my God, my voice cracked again. And the character Martin Short is like, what? You want to go a third time? And he's embarrassed and he runs off, right? So he 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 fails this opportunity. And then uh, Kelly comes in to reassure him. And he's like, listen. And then I think this is the point where he finds out, like, I don't know if Kelly finds out or if someone else, maybe a side character comes in and informs them. But this is where a character comes in and goes, hey, Stryker got the, the role anyway, because his dad's funding the whole thing. So Ben Foster is like, ah, like it, like I'm screwed either way. So another big Ben Foster scream. It ends on that kind of sitcom-y sort of vibe. There's, there's got to be some more sexual tension between, between Melissa and Ben Foster. So she goes like, so what happened during your audition? You got scared? And he goes, no, I mean, yes, but... I was scared because of you. You're the one who scared me. And she was like, I did. And he was like, yes. He says, yes, I thought that, that I cared about someone and I thought she was a good person. And I thought she was a good person because she was with me, but she didn't like me. So if she doesn't like me, then obviously her, she has bad taste. So if she has bad taste and I trusted her. What does that say about me? And she says, if it says that you want to be with the right girl and he goes, well, how will I know when that is? And she goes, you'll know. And then they almost kiss again, but then they get interrupted. Maybe this is the interruption is a character coming in and going, Hey guys, Burke got the role anyway, or um, Stryker got the role anyway, because his dad's funding the thing. So it can be like, Oh, I got interrupted by my rival. Right. 
So good mm -hmm. stuff. So then in a conversation with Melissa, he goes, hey, he figures out that she gets the lead part in the play, even though she doesn't even care about the play. <gasps> and he goes, "What? wait, what? And she goes, no, Stryker got me the role because now we're boyfriend, girlfriend, and we get to share a big kiss on stage. And she was embarrassed about kissing him in front of her friends, but now she wants to kiss, kiss this total douchebag in front of the entire school? What? So he's like... I thought you wanted to watch the big game. And she goes, eh, I'll TiVo it, right? So she's a total <gasps> fucking jerk. She's not changing for him. So this, I, I'm really proud of this script. <laughs> so second act stuff, I've got to kind of blast through it because I'm already going long. So the critic, we've got more jokes about the critic teasing Martin Short. And Martin Short is like, what are you doing in this small town high school? And the critic's like, when I go in for the kill, I go in for the kill. And so it's like, yeah, nice. like this critic who has no reason to be at this high school play is like, I'm going to fucking bury Martin Short. You're a dead man. Your career is done. Uh, so we're raising the stakes. We're making the ex-girlfriend more and more dislikable. We're making Kelly, the Kirsten Dunst character, more and more likable. We're having more and more near kisses. And then right near the end of the movie, right before one of the big moments, she goes, why don't you kiss me? And he says, well, why don't you kiss me? Or she goes, why don't you kiss me? And he goes, because I'll disappoint you. And she go, and then he goes, why don't you kiss me? It's not all on me. Why aren't you? We've had so many near kisses. Why don't you kiss me? And she goes, because things never work out when you take a chance. That's why I have stage fright. Because I had a bad experience Aww. in elementary school. I wanted to be in the play, but I, I had a bad audition or a bad play. And so now I have stage fright. So when you take a chance, things go bad. That's why I can't kiss you, right? So now we know that these two characters want to kiss. And we got to make that yes. kiss special. So he says, but your song is so good, right? So we're going to have another moment of like she, she so oh no no okay so here here's where it goes so at the at the big rally before at the big rally before the the final night of the play the first night of the play i mean martin short goes to give a speech to the to the troops right to rally them up he's got to be the director but martin short is like whatever just go out there and do whatever you want to do i don't care so then there's an accident <gasps> striker has an accident, but guess what? It's not a real accident. He says something like, I stubbed my toe. I can't do this because guess what? He knows he's bad and he's fucking chickening out. This how much, you know what he is? He's an Anshuman. He's a fucking Anshuman. So he's he knows like- He doesn't have the, he doesn't have what it takes. And he's chickening, he's chickening out. But who wants a theater career? Our main character wants a theater career. So he's got to be the lead. Kelly says, Ben Foster, you should do this. You should be the lead. But yes. he doesn't want to be the lead. You know why? Because that means he's got to kiss his ex-girlfriend. And we hate oh, her now. We hate her now. He doesn't want to kiss his ex-girlfriend. So then, then Ben Foster goes, I don't want to be the lead. You know what, Kelly? We should be doing your songs. We should do your song at the end. And she goes... 
no, I don't want to do my song. I have, when you take a chance, I don't want to put my art out there. My songs are for me, not the whole crowd. So she gets mad at him. And then you know what? They're really close and in each other's faces and the tension is high Ooh. and they're, they're about to, it's like sexy, steamy, angry. Like, well, you know what? You know what? And then he goes, well, you know what? I'm, I'm going to, you betrayed me. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to kiss my ex-girlfriend. And she's like, you know what? You betrayed me. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to play the greatest piano that I've ever played in my life. So it's like a sexy kiss, but they don't kiss because now they hate each other. Oh, it's just like the rain scene in the Kira Knightley Pride and Prejudice. Uh, maybe I've only seen it once, but so he's mad at her. So now they go out and this is what I'm talking about in the Ben Foster scene where she's singing and he's like, Oh, I remember what it's like to like you. Then when he goes out to mm-hmm. do the play, they do the best fucking musical that they've ever done because she's playing the music. So the music has to be good and he's doing the acting and the acting has to be good. So they're competing with each other to go, fuck you. I'm a good actor. So ha ha ha. I'm going to kiss this lady at the end. Cause the whole play involves this kiss so it's got to be a really heated kiss so he's like you know what fuck you i'm gonna kiss my ex-girlfriend how about that and she's like fuck you i'm gonna play the best piano how about that and then at the end of the movie when he's got it or at the end of the play when he's got to kiss her he's on one side of the stage and she's on the other and he fucking he's so passionate and he's leans in for the kiss and then he's like he sees her in the background, right? Cause she's kind of off stage and he sees her and he's so fucking heated up in that moment. And she sees him and she's so fucking heated up in that moment that they both, he, he pushes her to the side and she slams the keys down on the piano and they meet mid stage and they both kiss each other and the crowd gasps. And Martin short is like, oh my God, this is a disaster. Like, this is my my worst fear. My whole thing has come. This is the end of the line for me. The moment is finally here. And then the audience fucking goes nuts. And he's yeah. like, all right, if, if they go nuts, they go nuts. And then Martin Short runs into the critic out in the lobby and the critic goes, that was amazing. You deserve all the credit for that. The, the headline in tomorrow's national newspaper is going to be Martin Short takes chance with new take on Shakespeare and dazzles once more. And Martin Short's like, fuck yeah, this is what I've always wanted. A good review from this critic. But then he sees Ben Foster and Kirsten Dunst off to the side and he goes, you know what? The title, the article, the headline of your article should actually read and he calls them out. And he goes, it should actually read, it actually should read, Kirsten Dunst takes, you know, new student, Kirsten Dunst takes chance on Shakespeare and dazzles. And she's like, actually, you know what? It should read, Martin Short takes chance on students Kelly and Ben and dazzles the crowd. And then the, the, the movie critic goes, you know what? That could work. And then... And then he walks away and Martin Short goes, why, why? I've been nothing but, but I I have never cared about this. And she goes, you know what? It's true. And he goes, really? And he starts to feel like a good director again. And she goes, of course. So they celebrate. Martin Short leaves. 
And then Ben Foster goes, really? He was a good director? And she goes, oh, no, but no one's going to read an article with just our names in it. He's a he's a Broadway director. He's going to get eyes on ah. that. Now he owes us one. And then she goes, and then he goes, you know what? Because now she's super sexy because she's like confident and smart and capable. And she plays the piano really well. And he goes, you know what? I like you. And she goes, why? And he goes, I like what I like, right? Which is what she said to him at the beginning about the the the, the, the I'm like a bird song. So then they yeah. kiss, they kiss, and maybe that song's playing, and roses are being thrown on the stage or whatever. And then, so now here's where things get nuts because we have two routes we can go. If you want to go the horror movie route, we cut to six months later, and they're both super depressed. They've broken up. They're both miserable failures and nothing worked out for them. Right. Because after high school, life doesn't turn out like you like. But if you want to do the rom commie happy ending, which is the ending I prefer. So I made a very bad horror movie, but I think I made a good rom-com movie is six months later. They're happy. Maybe we can have some kind of cookie thing at the beginning of the movie. Like when he goes over to Ben Foster, when Ben Foster goes over to Kirsten Dunst's house for the first time to learn how to sing, maybe his mom makes him cookies or something. Maybe that's how he interrupts her. Right. It's like she brings in cookies and they're like, ah, oh, we almost had a sexy kiss, but now mom. So then. Maybe Ben Foster goes to grab one of mom's cookies because it's really good. And he can end the scene by taking a bite. And he's like, oh, wow, it was really good. He goes to take one of Kirsten Dunst's mom's cookies. But he's like, hey, where'd all the cookies go? And she and and Kirsten Dunst goes, oh, I ate the last cookie. And he's like, he, you know, it could be like a, a moment where you think he's going to yell at her. But then he gives her the biggest, sexiest, passionate kiss that he can. And she goes, why did you do that? And he goes, eh, I'm over it. Boom, cut to credits, get over it, title, boom, music. I would prefer the rom-com ending. I mean, you you didn't follow the prompt to remix it as a whore, but you turned it into a really fun rom-com. Uh, you, I justified you, you tweet- it by giving you, again, you're the producer. So if you want to make a horror movie, you can cut to six months later and everyone is a failure. Right, but it's, you know... I'm not Kevin Williamson. I'm more of a Nora Ephron, you know? So I, I, I feel like if this were She Remore's production company, I'm definitely producing the rom-com script. And, yeah. and I, I liked how you, so you, you felt like some of the things weren't really earned in Get Over It as far as sort of the growing intimacy, the stakes and things like that. So you up the stakes and you made the intimacy more between them. The biggest thing that a character should do, I give you that book, The Nutshell Technique. So anyone who wants to know my approach into making this movie and how I dissected Get Over It should look up The Nutshell Technique by Jill Chamberlain, I think. what, What she says in the movie is, or in the book, is that the character should want something. And then 10 minutes into the movie or 20 minutes or whatever, by the end of the first act, he should get what he wants, but there's a catch. And then at the end of the movie the thing he originally wanted isn't the thing that he wants anymore. So in my movie, and then he has to make some bold choice to show that he's grown as a character. In my movie, the thing he wants is the part, right? In Get Over It, he doesn't want the part. He wants the girl. He plays basketball, and that whole basketball line is completely thrown out. 
he just stops playing and there's no consequences. So in Get Over It, he's doing something he doesn't care about for a girl that doesn't care about him. And he's kind of, he's he's off in this better relationship with Kirsten Dunst anyway. So his decision at the end of the movie isn't hard for us, the audience, because we're like, well, who cares? He should be with her anyway. It's a rom-com, be with her. In my version, he wants the part. And at the end of the movie, he's got to sacrifice the part for the girl. But because it's a silly rom-com, right, because it's a silly rom-com, it works out in his favor. And there's there's ups and downs along the way, but it works out in his favor. And ultimately, everything is happy in the end. Right. But right. In, a, in a horror movie, you could take that chance and she could slap him in the face or you could cut to six months later. But the fear, that tension, raising the stakes of in that moment when he's looking at her and the audience is invested in the, the play, but he's got to deviate from the play to kiss the girl. But the audience is like, holy fuck, we were just we care about the passion. Right. We care about the love. Right. He has to sacrifice the thing that he ostensibly wanted in the first act to achieve what he truly wants. Right. The, he, he sacrifices what he wants for what he needs. Ah. And so get over it again. Get over it was extremely well made. It, it followed the formula really well. I just think a few things in the formula were, were a little off. And because of that, the entire if you don't have a good foundation, you don't have a good ending. And I thought if they just tweaked that foundation a little bit, could have been a, a really good movie. I think that that makes sense. And I, I like your tweaks. I, I think it's fun. And, you know, I, I, I am not tired of the high school template. I would watch this movie that you've pitched to me. I mean, there's, already been some some pretty good recent teen rom-coms that have been successful uh like netflix's to all the boys i love before adaptation so i mean there remains a market for this template and it's a well that i think people are happy to go back to again and again because it just works so well yeah I agree. It was fun to write two completely different high school movies. <laughs> yeah, no, especially since, you know, I, I I was interested to learn that you're not drawn to high school protagonists at all in terms right. of writing a movie. I in general I, I'm not either. I I like I like adult protagonists. And in fact I would rather I'd like to see more romance protagonists that are in their thirties or, or older. But that's that's a whole other thing. Uh, yeah. all right. All right. So I, I went a little bit more um I, I too didn't go straight horror. I decided to go for more of a thriller. And the reason why is I'm learning that now that we've done um, you know, over 10 of these, I'm starting to be aware of my patterns, the, the things that I go to again and again. And my first impulse was to write a story about competitive serial killers, but I did competitive serial killers in Amelie. Uh, I also did that for uh, While You Were Sleeping, 
Um, and I think that there might be another one where I had competitive killers. And so I was like, oh my God, this is too much my thing. I can't do a third remix about uh, competitive killers, even though- I, it be- I think I hit it once in one of my movies. So it's a, it's a good one though. It's a really good one. It's fun. It's fun to have cat versus cat. I, I well, love a good Korean movies and, and Korean movies, those horror movies, they have a lot of cat versus cat. Yeah, no, the, the idea that, that of multiple killers operating in the same area is just, you know, is very provocative. But I decided I was like, no, I can't do what I did a couple of episodes back. I gotta, I gotta change things. So I, I made yeah. this a, a classic who done it Rashomon different perspectives so it's called Ooh, I like that. it's called killing allison uh and so on the night of the dress rehearsal for the school spring musical allison mcallister is murdered who are the suspects everyone who was there that night. So Detective Helen Hart, you know a little female Sam Spade action. Yeah. Uh, Helen Hart uh- is she a, is she an adult investigator or is she like yes. Veronica Mars? No, she's an adult. So she's the adult investigator who now has to interview each one of the students who was there when Allison got murdered and then learn from their perspectives what really happened. Gotcha. So In the like, Kate Williamson version of the movie, it's played by uh, Kristen Bell. Right, right. You know, she could be the wizen. She's she's kind of a young detective, so they feel like she can relate to them. But she's, uh, you know, she's she's out of high school. Uh, so first up, we have Stryker. He relates the first version uh, about how that night they were rehearse they were rehearsing the final scene. A uh, pyrotechnic effect went off. Uh, And as they were all looking in the direction of the explosion, they then heard a scream. And when they turned around, they just saw Allison bludgeoned by a floodlight. Uh, And then Stryker Mm -hmm. is convinced that it's Burke, Allison's ex-boyfriend, because he's still obsessed with her. So it's like it's kind of like a passing the torch relay to where... Uh, each interrogation leads to the next perspective. You could say it's kind of like brick almost, uh, but hopefully better. Uh, <laughs> so I liked brick. Oh, so hates liked, that movie. Okay. My mom hates that movie. So. <laughs> I fine. can tell you that I liked it the first time I watched it, but then I tried to show it to someone and I felt deeply embarrassed. Oh, I'm the complete opposite. I watched it and loved it. And then I showed it to my mom and she was like, this is dumb. I'm going to fall asleep. And I was like, go ahead. I'm watching this movie and I'm enjoying it. If you want to fall asleep, if that's the better use of your time taking a nap, go for it. But it's, you know, some similar flavor. These are, these are some film noir teens, you know, they're, 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 they're shady. So we got got a movie called Cherry. Cherry is like brick only not with a famous kid oh isn't that the one about the teenage prostitute or porn star or whatever and the teen guy gets into her yeah but it's got like a high school noir mystery vibe i don't know if she's a prostitute or webcam girl or what but she's a femme fatale i think 
Oh, gotta love a femme fatale. So, but, but, you know, we got to get with the boyfriends and the ex-boyfriends first, because in right. any in investigation, they're obviously the first ones that you, you want to, you want to interview. So uh, Burke is next. He admits that, yes, he was stalking Allison and he was doing the play to be near her, but it, he didn't kill her. Uh, he tells Hart that he thinks Allison was afraid of someone, but she didn't say who it was. Uh, so he tells her that she needs to talk to Allison's best friend, Maggie. So we get to Zoe Saldana, Maggie, who reveals that Stryker told Allison that he's also into guys and they were having some freaky deaky threesomes with a classmate, Dennis Crazy Legs Wallace, not to kink shame. You know, they just they were they were really into free threesomes. Uh, but Maggie thinks that Stryker would have done anything to keep Allison from revealing his sexual preferences uh, and ruining his career as a result. So Maggie thinks that Dennis, because he was on the stage crew, is the one that crushed Allison with the floodlight because Stryker put him up to it. So, you know, we got to talk to Dennis next. So we get to Dennis. He swears he didn't kill Allison. Uh, and then he reveals crucial info. Kelly, one of Allison's class uh, castmates, was deeply jealous of her and in love with Allison's ex, Burke. He thinks that Kelly did it to get Allison out of the way. So now we mm. got to hear Kelly's version. Yep. She says that, yep, it's true that she's into Burke, uh, but she wouldn't go so so far. And then like Burke, she says, I think Allison was afraid of someone. Uh, she was very nervous that day. And I heard her talking. Kelly says she heard her talking on the phone, begging the caller to stop. So now Detective Hart goes through Allison's phone and finds that it was Mr. Forrest Oates' assistant, Jessica, who called uh, Allison. So now we talk to Jessica and she tells her that she did call on Forrest Oates behalf because Allison was blackmailing Forrest Oates and Jessica was mad at Allison on Forrest Oates behalf. Now, what was, Je what was Allison blackmailing Forrest Oates about? Well, Detective Hart finds out Allison knew that uh, Forrest Oates was in a relationship with a student, I know, I just keep coming back to student-teacher relationships. <laughs> They're just so fun and taboo. Scandalous. Uh, <laughs> scandalous. But Forrest Oates was in a relationship with that his star student, Peter Wong, uh, and Allison was blackmailing him to keep quiet. Um, but uh, Detective Hart's like, clearly you're the one who did it. You wanted to shut her up because she knew about your relationship, but... Forrest Oates is like, no, I definitely didn't do it. Someone you interviewed previously has lied to you. You like, you've got the wrong guy. He's like, you've got the wrong guy. It's not me. So now that we have our red herring out of the way, because in any good investigative story, you got to have the person who looks like the culprit, but is obviously not. So now final scene Dr. Hart, or not, Detective Hart has called back Stryker and Maggie. And she looks mm. at Maggie and says, Stryker told me everything. And then that's when Maggie explodes. She's like, how could you? Blah, 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 blah. And Stryker's like, no, I told her that Burke did it. And he's, of course, telling his truth, which is that's what he had told her in his interview. 
but Maggie keeps incriminating herself. And then she eventually reveals the truth, which is that she and Stryker had planned to scare Burke away with the um, with the pyrotechnics and the floodlight because they were mad at him for stalking Allison. Uh, mm-hmm. And so they had planned it specifically to mess with Burke, but then the floodlight accidentally fell on Allison, killing her. Uh, and then Maggie realizes that, you know, she's been had and she asks Detective Hart how she knew and Hart says, I guessed. Nice. I like it. No, I like um, uh, our, our, our quote. Well, for me, it's a quote unquote horror. But for my horror movie, the 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 tension and stakes came from um, the the scary part came from, you know, the the idea in high school that this is like your whole life. And, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. and in yours, a lot of the the tension comes from that gossipy, backstabby high school childish sort of who he said, she said, who's telling the truth. Right. I like it. Yes, no one knows who Allison really was. <laughs> uh, so I hate to rush things along. Yes, but we but do. We do really have to episode. land this. <laughs> yes. We do have to land this, and and we will probably edit out a good portion. So let's talk love bites. What you got for me this week? Ooh, uh, I'm gonna keep it real short because I have like it's been a while since we recorded, so I have like a hundred yeah. things I could talk about. But the thing that I watched. Uh, that was the f- you know the most recent after our last recording was Castlevania season three on Netflix. Oh my God, have you seen this show? I have, but I'm actually not a as big fan of it as you are. Uh, did you see? Me. Did you see the whole thing? Yeah, but season, tell, you, tell, you didn't like season three. Um, I'm a big Richard Armitage fan. Um, the, the guy who does the, the voice of Trevor, Mm, he could read the phone book and make it sexy. Um, but tell me, tell me what you like about the show. I want to know. I think what I like about it is I don't know the Castlevania lore, but I'm really interested in that. I don't have a medieval fantasy movie or show that i like i never watched game of thrones never got into the lord of the rings i'm on the kevin smith randall side of things that they're just about a bunch of people walking uh i like i don't have a a a medieval fantasy show that i like and i can't play the games because i played symphony of the night and that movie or that game is a masterpiece i love that game but i can't play any of the other games because they're way too hard for me (laughs) So I'm not going to sit there and be frustrated trying to play an old Nintendo 1989 game where they had no idea what they were doing and it's just impossibly hard. So I like the atmosphere though. So I don't mind watching people who are good at the game play the game. But for me, the show it has these moments that are like, oh, that's from the game. Even though I don't know the games, the show takes the game seriously and it's like, oh, this cool thing, it's cool because it's from the game. Whereas I'm like, I don't care that it's from the game. I just like that it's cool. So because this show takes its source material seriously and I've never seen the source material, so I don't hold it as, you know, the Bible, 
I'm just like, right. holy shit! There's a thing. There's a video game character in the in the mood or in the game that's a ball of people, and these people attack you, and it's called the Legion. And in the game, it's this grotesque form of melted bodies, and it's gross and and whatever. In Castlevania Season Three, they have a giant ball of people attacking the main characters, and it feels cool like it doesn't feel cheesy it feels like holy shit this is badass this mind control guy is taking over these people and they're a giant ball how ridiculously crazy and cool is that so that's why i like the show i i do enjoy an anime with people being attacked by giant fleshy masses i think akira made it cool and it's continued to work um yeah i haven't finished season three so uh i i i, I have I to think, <laughs> i don't I, think I there's mean, gonna be an episode that wins you over if you haven't gotten I into mean, it, it well no i mean i i, I don't know i it, in the interest of time i i won't get into the things that don't quite work for me from it um but i do you know again always i i love a show or movie that is having fun and doing interesting things and not playing it safe. And I don't think that Castlevania plays it safe at all. Uh, So yeah, no, that, that, that's a good rec. I will also make a Netflix recommendation. Uh, I was thinking of other high school uh, media. Uh, So if you want to scratch your high school itch, some more, I would recommend the show on Netflix, Elite. It is a Spanish show, and it's about teens at an elite academy in Spain. Uh, One of the girls gets murdered, and the plot of the season is figuring out who murdered her. And the suspects include the scholarship students Uh, who are bullied by the other people at the academy who are rich. So you've got that classic Veronica Mars-style class tension. There's some forbidden romance between uh, the popular high school bully and this Muslim scholarship student. Uh, And it's just, you know, it's a very fun, frothy little show. Uh, And then my other recommendation is based on a musical cue in Get Over It. Uh, In Get Over It, whenever Kelly and Burke are together, they play this song uh, by Badly Drawn Boy, The Shining. Uh, And it's, it's a cute song, but I point it out because the album that that song comes from uh, Hour of the Bewilderbeast by Badly Drawn Boy is a really incredible album. Uh, and if you liked that song or that musical cue, uh, the whole album is worth listening to and it's, uh, it's really good music. All right. Very nice. We don't get too many music recommendations, so good to hear one. Here and there, here and there. All right. Well, we will sign off for now, uh, and catch each other next time. Yeah. Sounds good. Smell you later.
Necromancer is produced by Brett Dorman and Shira Moore. The theme song is Symphonia 3 by Kevin McLeod on the album Oddities.